a couple of pastoral notes um, as I begin to preach. I'm very thankful for the way that you gave financially, money, 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 money. I always try to say money in churches instead of gifts or uh, what are the other circumlocutions. Um, yes, finances, you know. So thank you for taking your money and giving it to God. We, we do not take for granted. You know, I'm thinking of your dad and the burden he has to raise money for your support right now. And uh, we don't take money for granted. And those of you who uh, look at the amount of money that we asked you to give every week, what was it, 21000 or so? And you say, well, that's a huge amount, and I only gave an extra 50. Okay? Remember the story that Jesus told, where he talked about the widow's might, and he said she gave more. And being worldly, we always think that that means, well, yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, I mean, you know. And what I always want to say is, no, she gave more. And you say, well, yeah, proportionately. And I say, no, she gave more. In other words, when the kingdom of God uses the widow's might, it is more powerful and does more, accomplishes more, even financially, than the rich man who gives from his excess. Do you understand what I mean by that? Don't patronize the widow. She gave more. And that more accomplished more. In other words, I'd rather go into a car dealer with a widow's might than I would with the rich man's money. Because the car dealer would see more money in my hand if I went in with the widow's might. Does this make sense to you? It's, Jesus said she gave more. All right, all right. Now, one other thing. Um, You all know that much of the Christian world today is given over to marketing, right? And you know that everybody looks at everybody's blogs and conferences and everything to see who else has them listed on their sidebar, right? And, and you know that's how the church in America works today. Everybody's looking to see, you know, what the sidebar and whose ads you're carrying and what conference is commended by what muckety-muck. You know what a muckety-muck is? Sam, you don't know? What's a grand poopa? <laughs> That's a good way to raise your children. If they ask you the meaning of a word, give them a larger word to define it. Sets the sight high, right? It, it's somebody that's a stuffed shirt. Now do you know? Somebody very impotent. In other words, it's somebody that everybody says, oh, him, and then acts as if they're on a first-name basis, right? Something nobody ever does with me, okay? <laughs> Except in this church. You know, I'm a, a very fat fish in a very small pond. All right. These are the Wegner's friends, so I'm sorry. I should back up and act as if there's somebody else in the church. Now, now do you feel a little bit safer, Samuel? This is, this is much more what you were expecting, right? Poor guy. You'll never forget this. Okay, I'll stop. I won't really, but... And the reason I'm bringing this up is that... And I know this sounds like marketing, and we have a principle against marketing, but listen. When we have a conference, when we have a pastor's college, when we publish books, do you know the next book that's going to come out is actually uh, a book of my dad's stories, okay? And so it can be self-serving. But my brother and sister are signed over the royalties. They said the royalties they're happy to not have any unless it just goes berserk, right? When we do these things, we need you to be our conduit to the church around the country. And I know the church around the country, and I know the work we're doing here is unique. And so please 
be salesmen, be marketers for our conference and our books and our pastor's college and for Athanasius and for having people move here. Meet people move for churches all, all the time. And this is a church where you would want your children and your grandchildren to grow up, right? And I'm not saying there aren't any other churches I'd recommend. There are, okay? But I have no hesitation in calling you to sell this church with testimonies of God's grace, right? After all, if somebody tells you that they spent $15 on knowing God by J.I. Packer, and that you should read that book, you don't look at them and say, well, Jim Packer gets $1.50 from that sale, and you're just a huckster. No, you say, well, if he recommends the book, I'll do it. And that's how all books are sold. That's how all conferences are sold. That's how colleges are sold. How do you think Covenant and Wheaton get people to come in Huntington? (laughs) Right? All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, I'm done. So be salesmen for the work of God that is being done in this church. Be salesmen, right? Uh, Many of you are. And I appreciate it. Yikes. Okay. Now, um, let me give a few words of introduction to our sermon today. So today is graduation Sunday. You all saw our young men and women up here. All right. And on graduation Sunday, the question that we asked them is, what are you going to do? And some say this and some say that, and we all who are older sit there and listen and we say, well, who knows what they're going to end up doing. I mean, what high school graduate ever has any clue what life is going to bring to him or, or to her or to it? It's a joke. Um, and so this morning what I want to do is I want to warn us about something, and that is that we should not be presumptuous about the presence of God. We should not think that because we're members of Clearnote or because we come from the Wegner family or because our mother is that perfect zebra baker, (laughs) that that means that God is present with us. We have to be very careful about this, people. Presumption is a sin that is unknown among postmoderns today. And it's not because the sin is unknown, but it's because no postmodern thinks that there's anything in this life that he doesn't fully deserve. That's the nature of our world today. We all think that we deserve a perfect life, a perfect death, and then perfect heaven. And so in life, we reject suffering. In death, we reject suffering. And then we're all absolutely certain that whatever comes afterwards, we'll get the good part of it. And that's the way we live. And we teach our children to live this way. And so if you look today and try to find places where we as Christians ask God to be present, Ask him to be present. Ask him to bless us with his presence. You have to realize that it's a dying habit among Christians today. We just don't even think that God wouldn't be present with us. This is assumed. To be American is to have God present. (laughs) I'm American, therefore God is present. Or, well, I'm American and I'm not mainline liberal, or I'm American, I'm not Mormon, or I'm American and I'm not Jehovah's Witness, or I'm American and I'm not um, megachurch, or I'm American and, and so today everybody just assumes that God will, does, and has blessed them, and so they have to do a little bit of work with some of the things that have hit them that haven't been quite pleasant, you know. And and then they read Rabbi Kushner, why bad things happen to good people. And he tells you that God is impotent, that he couldn't keep it from happening, and that he grieves with you. 
And then they're done with those unpleasant thoughts and they're back on the road to happiness. And so years ago, there was a cartoon that I loved, which was a guy sitting at a bar and he's saying to the bartender, I had a happy childhood. I had a happy four years at college. My midlife was happy. My old life is going to be happy and then I'm going to die and go to heaven. And that's the theology of most Christians in America today. And there are a few blips on the screen, and you go and cry with a pastor when you hit the blips, but it's soon over, and you don't remember it like a woman with childbearing, you know. <laughs> and then it's happy again, and we're headed to heaven. Now, if that's how you think, that's presumption. And there's a reason you don't know the word presumption. It's a word that your culture is perfectly tuned to eviscerate from your brain. All right? And so study the words that our culture is killing. Study them. That's where you need to focus your attention. What does it mean to be presumptuous? It's, it, it means to assume God's favor, to assume his presence, to assume his blessing. And that's what I want to focus on today. That's not the only meaning of presumption. But that's, the, the, that's a kind of presumption that I want to address today. And I want to address it by looking at the Israelites when they're sitting at the seat of Mount Sinai. Now, do you remember what happened? Abraham, I mean, not Abraham, Moses is called to the top of the mountain, okay, and he gets the law of God. And while he's up there, the Israelites are told, don't touch the mountain. You remember this? The reason they're not to touch the mountain is, <laughs> why? Because God is present there. They're not to touch the mountain because God is present there. All right? And so they're at the foot of the mountain, Moses is up on top, God is giving him the law, writing it on tablets of stone, right? And the Israelites are so scared and so on edge that they want something to mediate the tension between the holiness of God and their own wickedness. They all know their hearts. You know your heart. I know my heart. We know we're sinners. And so they need something to mediate the tension between the holiness of God and themselves. So what do they do? Well, they get a hold of Aaron, who has been left at the foot of the mountain, and they convince him that he needs to let them make an idol. And that's what idols always do, is they mediate the tension between the holiness of God and our own sinfulness. All right? And so they get all their jewelry together, and they build a golden calf. And then they worship in front of the calf. And because the calf is an idol and not a true God, it doesn't call them to holiness. It allows them to have a sexual orgy. You remember that's what they were doing at the foot of the mountain. That's always what happens with idolatry is sexual immorality happens. Always think idolatry, adultery. Just associate the words in your mind. And so here they are at the foot of the mountain. God's holiness is in the mountain. They give themselves to idolatry. And here's another word that postmoderns don't know. And that's the word acquiesce. Aaron acquiesces to their idolatry. He gives them this calf. This calf chills them out about God's holiness and their sin, and therefore they're able to go into adultery, sexual immorality. Okay? And always remember, this is what idols do. They get us chilled out about the holiness of God. And that's Mary in the Catholic Church. Come on, have eyes to see it. Mary's the perfect median point between our wickedness and the holiness of God. And they all say, well, we're not praying, praying, praying to Mary. That was a Freudian slip. <laughs> Man. Okay. So God sees what's going on. He sees the sexual immorality. He sees the idolatry. He sees the eating and drinking. It's just absolutely gone to smithereens at the foot of the mountain. 
And so what he says to Moses is, go down, okay? Moses gets down there, he calls out, and what happens is God doesn't consume all the Israelites. He just consumes thousands of them. And he uses the Levites, you remember this, to kill, to go through. And the Levites are commended because they don't discriminate between their own family members and friends and others as they do their killing, which is the mark of a good elders board, that a good elders board has judgment begin with their children and not yours. Huh? Pastors too, right? So the Levites are commended, all right? And then the question is, what is going to happen? Well, you remember what God said. God said, it's time for you to leave, go on up, but what? It's time for you to leave, but what? Now let's read. Exodus 33, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. For I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to them, or to Moses, excuse me, say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now, therefore, put off your ornaments from you so that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of what? Meeting. Meeting with whom? With God. All right, he used to call it the tent of meeting, okay? And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp, and it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. How you put that together with him being the humblest man, or the meekest man that ever lived. Isn't that unbelievable? When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Isn't that interesting? Then you put that together with what else you know about Joshua. As a young man, he was a doorkeeper. He'd rather be a doorkeeper at the house of the God. All right? Like Jesus, you know. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's back in Jerusalem. Where? You know, at Vanity Fair? (laughs) No, at the temple. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, God, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be, what's the word? Distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. 
The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. This is the word of the Lord. Now, if you look at the beginning, what do you see? Well, you see in verse 3, it says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst because you're an obstinate people and I might destroy you on the way. So at the beginning of the text, God says, You go, I will not go with you. All right? And so this means that when we enlist in the military... This means that when we move, this means that when we enroll and matriculate in a college, university, this means that when we choose a mate, this means that when we date someone with intention of marriage, this means that when we uh, choose a church, this means that when a church decides to start a pastor's college, this means that when a church decides it's going to add on, This means that when we sit down at the Lord's table, this means when we sit down at our own table, we should call, this means when we get in the car to drive somewhere for a family vacation or for a support raising trip. See, I'm back with you, okay? All right, this means that we should always pray and ask God to be with us, right? And so some of us grew up singing occasionally or all the time that little ditty at the family table. You remember it. Be present at our table, Lord. Do any of you remember that song? One person? Well, I remember it in the first service. There are a number who did. (laughs) But think of how often you heard with your parents or your grandparents them ask, God to be present at their table. Think of when you were a child and you'd go on trips, how your parents would ask God to be present with you as you drove, protecting you, right? It used to be a habit. It's a dying habit. It's a dying habit. Everything we do in life, we should do consciously asking for God to be with us. Why do you think I always begin my sermons with, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer? That's me asking God to be present as I preach. What do you think I do in the morning before my first, uh, my first uh, preaching to you? Uh, some of you see me do it. I'm in the office, and at some point I come out, and I'm always in a bad mood. <laughs> it's true, all right? It's not because I don't want to preach, but it's, I don't know what it is. It's distemper. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter. And I ask Stephen and David, and if Stephen isn't around, I ask David to pray for me. And what does David pray every time that God would be present in the preaching of the word to this church despite my sin, despite my lack of faith, despite my distemper, that God would use me? Okay? If God is not with us, everything we do goes to the dogs. You are not someone who has escaped the fall and its corruption, and therefore you don't need God. You need God to guide you, you need him to give you wisdom, you need him to direct you, and then you need him to go up with you. You need him to raise your children. And when you get old and your children are done raised, anything good you see in them is because of God's blessing despite your sin as parents. And all of us are sitting here looking at me going like this. You just can't see them, but I see them. And anything your children do that's wrong is your fault. Okay? And so, on graduation Sunday, I want to be very, very clear to us as a congregation that whether it's Athanasius or the pastor's college or adding on or passing a budget, everything we do as a church should be done with the request that God would give us, make known to us his will, and would then make us able to accomplish what he has directed us to do. 
Now, if I were to say to you that we as a church believe that God has led us to build this building and that God led us to change the name from Church of the Good Shepherd to Clear Note Church, you'd kind of be like, well, I didn't like the decision, but yeah, I guess he's right in saying God led us. But I want you to think very specifically for a second about how God works through a congregation because you're going to be willing to buy into it on the level of a church and then I can use that to get at you with your marriages in your home, okay? So let me start with the church. In Presbyterian polity, at Presbytery meetings, which is a clump of churches, and at General Assembly, which is all the churches in some larger geographical area, all right, they do something called uh, session book examination. They look at the minutes. They examine the minutes. There's certain men that delight in that work, which is to go into a room, be all alone, and just read and be uh, uh, really meticulous. So there's a certain kind of man that would do it, and I won't mention who it would be in our church, but we all know who it would be, right? Obviously, David Canfield. And he did it. He's saying here he did it. I didn't know that, but it would be David Canfield, yes. Somebody with an eye for detail and a lot of patience. And somebody that doesn't get a kick out of hobnobbing with muckety-mucks and grand poobahs, all right? Stuff shirts. And so they look through these books and they read the minutes of every congregational meeting. And at General Assembly, they read the minutes of presbytery meetings. And one of the things that they look for is to see whether every session meeting and every congregational meeting, does anybody know what I'm going to say, begins and ends with prayer. Now, why? Well, because Christians understand that if the assembly gathers together to make a decision that it should make that decision with the help of God, and therefore, at the beginning and end of the meeting, it should call down God's presence and his leading in the meeting. Does that make sense? And so when a decision is made in this congregation, we don't simply say it seemed good to us, but like the Jews in Acts 15, or, or the, the first Christians, there's this little phrase there that my mother loved, and I learned to love it from my mother. All right? And the phrase is, after they have their huge fight, which is what is called the Council of Jerusalem, all right? this knockdown fight over circumcision, when they get done, all right, they send the message to the church of Antioch, and it says this. They summarize the fight where the whole congregation, all the apostles, everybody fought, and then came to a decision. They say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Now, what if your husband came to you and said that? Uh, wifey? It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to me. You know, you've known, well, maybe it doesn't happen today, but it used to happen a lot, especially at Bible colleges, that some bits brain dude would go up to a woman that he had been eyeing from a distance out of cowardice for many months and had sort of vicariously fallen in love with her and deluded himself into thinking she may be open to loving him back. And he would go to her and say, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to me that you should marry me. Now, that's not exactly the way he'd say it. What he would say is, I believe that God has led me to ask you to be my wife. Well, he's never bothered wooing her. <laughs> There's John. And so what I want you to see is that in the life of a congregation, when you have a congregational meeting, you pray at the beginning and you pray at the end. And the purpose of your prayer is that God will lead you, that he will be present, that he will lead you, okay? Now, you go back to the Israelites in the wilderness and you see a beautiful representation of that physically. You could almost say that because of the physical manifestation that it's a sacrament, that a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, when it got up and went, they knew that God was leading them, right? 
And so God was present with the Israelites. They were a congregation. They prayed, God was present, and God led them. As a matter of fact, if they look back, they could see that God was the one that whooped up on, the, on, the, on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians. They could see that God was the one that sent the plagues. God was the one that allowed them to cross the Red Sea. God was the one that also brought the Red Sea back on them and drowned them and killed them when they were trying to get at them, right? You're with me. God was with them. God was with them. God was with them. And that's why Miriam, you know, he has triumphed gloriously. Nobody deluded themselves into thinking that they were the ones that had rescued themselves from their slavery or from the Egyptians coming after them. We today, like the Israelites, see that this building does not belong to us and was not anything we did. It's not Mike's building. It's not my building. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's God's church. It's God's building. What we do here is by God's power. You're with me. Now, Nobody objects to me saying this about the church, right? We're all there, right? But what about your home? Do you presume to just simply take for granted God's presence in your decisions and, and the way that you live as a family and as a marriage, as a husband and wife? My answer to that is yes, we are presumptuous. And we simply assume that what we do as couples, what we do as families, what we do as individuals has God's blessing, unless it's directly contrary to Scripture. We're practical atheists, unless it's directly contrary to Scripture. Are you with me? Now, why would I say that? Well, I would say that because... Most of us, if we hadn't heard this sermon, we'd, we'd tend to think that if somebody were to pray and ask God to be present or were to pray and ask God to not take his spirit from us or were to pray and ask God to return to us, that they had violated the essential doctrines of Reformed theology. So much so that we had an elder here a few years who, when we used the words of Psalm 51 in our liturgy, he told me that it was contrary to Scripture for us to say, take not your Holy Spirit from us. Because in the New Covenant, God would never do such a thing. Why? Well, because Arminian reformed, it doesn't matter, everybody believes in eternal security today. And eternal security is the only doctrine that matters anymore. And so everything has to die so that eternal security can live. And so you don't pray that. You can't pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me because I'm saved once, saved always, and now I'm without compunction of conscience. And isn't that the purpose of Christianity? For me to be without compunction of conscience. After all, give in to fear and I must be unbelieving. Have any fear of God and there's something defective in my doctrine. <laughs> you know? It's fully twisted. It's so awful. It bears no resemblance to anything we see in Scripture. It bears no resemblance to anything we read about in any godly biography. And so listen, fear God and pray the book of Psalms as your prayer book. Okay? Because it is the Christian's prayer book. And here are the kinds of prayers we find in the book of Psalms. We find... The psalmist saying things like this, Psalm 13, 1, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Isn't that beautiful that God gives us that prayer? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? A word to those of you who struggle with depression.
Depression can be very useful. Very useful. Because depression can cause you to be the importunate widow that doesn't take no for an answer. You see that? The guy Enoch, who was godly in 83 or 84 when I worked with him gardening out in Massachusetts during seminary, he had a saying that I learned to love, and the saying was this, it's an ill wind that blows nobody some good. Depression is not such an ill wind. Depression does blow people good because it makes us go after God. Don't keep hiding your face from me. How long? And God says that he answers the prayer of the humble. And how would I ever be humble unless I was depressed? (laughs) You know, we always want the good without the bad. There is no grace without repentance. Always grace comes with repentance. So just get over it. Repentance is not something a hell's angel has to do. Right? The first of the 95 theses is when our Lord said you must repent, he was teaching us that the beginning of the Christian life is repentance. Is that what it says, the first thesis, Martin Luther? No. When our Lord said you must repent, he was teaching us that the beginning and middle of the Christian life is repentance. Is that what he was saying? No, that's not what he wrote. When our Lord Jesus said you must repent, he was teaching us that the The entire life of the Christian is a life of repentance. And so when we feel cut off from God, it's his gift that humbles us and drives us to our knees. And then we pray. Then we have the faith to pray these prayers. Do you see that? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 27, 9, do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not abandon me, nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. Huh? That's beautiful. Psalm 44, 24, why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Psalm 69, 17, and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. Psalm 88, 14, O Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? Psalm 102, 2, do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me in the day when I call. Answer me quickly. Psalm 51, this was the text that our elders said should never be prayed by the Christian. Verse 11, do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. What do you think the New Testament means when it says don't grieve the Holy Spirit? Why would it say that if there weren't consequences? Why do you think Scripture says today is the day of salvation? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, right? It's just amazing to me how serious the NBA playoffs are and how utterly uh, innocuous and blasé eternity is to American Christians. <laughs> the way we sing, the way we talk, the way we act, when it's any sport we care about, we lose all sense of ourselves. We're positively ecstatic, ecstasies. We stand outside of ourselves. But then, when it's the presence of the living God and we're worshiping, we can't get rid of ourselves and we're completely in bondage to other people and what they'd think of us if we raised our hands and tried to act like we were more spiritual than they were. And can't you just see the guy, you know, rooting for the Pacers, you know, with LeBron James in the house? being concerned about whether the guy next to him thinks that he thinks he's better than them because he's yelling louder than that guy is. I mean, guys, come on, you should be laughing. (sighs) 
There are real things at stake in the decisions you make. The smallest decisions. This is the reason that God puts you in a church with elders. Do you understand? This is the reason in Proverbs it says in a multitude of counselors there is, in, there is wisdom. There's a reason that you have bothered to pray at the beginning of your congregational meeting and then to vote on this man and this man and this man for elders. This is the reason you have chosen the elders and put them over you, because your life decisions are critically important. This is the reason the wise ones among you, before your heart is owned by a woman or a man that you're considering to be a spouse, you go to the people of this church and ask them what they think of that match. This life is serious. And as I get older, the consequences of decisions that men and women make where their elders have given them direction are unbelievably vivid and real to me. Do you understand me? I can tell you about meeting after meeting where there has been, for instance, adultery that has come out in a marriage. And the elders have met with the husband and wife, and whoever the adulterer is, they have examined them to see whether they have repented or whether they are still committed to adultery. I mean, it's a basic question about Christian marriage, right? You'd grant me that, right? And as they examine the person to find out whether that person is repentant or not, which is a job you want elders to do and not the wife or husband, the innocent spouse, right? You want your elders to do that. Are you all with me? Right? You all understand why you want your elders to do that, right? Especially in a culture where there's no fault divorce, so the, the courts have given up doing it. There should be somebody that's there to protect the innocent, right? And as the elders examine that relationship and they find that, in fact, the phone number for the adulteress to the adulterating husband is still on his cell phone. As a matter of fact, they find texts from that person still on the. As a matter of fact, they find that there are calls from him to her still on the cell phone within the last 48 hours when he repented of that relationship a week ago. And so they will say to him, you are not repentant. Oh, yes, I am. I just had a few details I needed to clean up. So another week goes by, and then they find he's still in contact with her, right? So then they say to the spouse, you ought not to continue to live with this man because this man has made absolute shipwreck of his vows before the holy God. And you may not continue to live with him in his sin because now that you know about his sin, his sin becomes your sin if you make your peace with his sin. And all your children will suffer the devastation of that. I remember one meeting with the elders in our office where the elders said that to a woman with her husband, the adulterer, sitting next to her. And she looked at them and she said, I feel like I'm being asked to make a decision between God and my husband. And I can remember Wayne Huck looking at her and saying, you're right. And the elders in that particular case said to her, listen, it's a terrible position you're in, but if you continue to make peace with his sin, the impact of it in your home is going to be devastating. We have seen it over and over. You may not do that. It is not loving God. It is not living by faith, and it is not helpful to your children. And it's certainly not helpful to your husband. <laughs> For you to act as if it's not appointed unto man once to die and after that. The judgment. For you to act as if, be not deceived, God is mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he not reap. Okay? You know your Bibles well enough to know I just twisted it fully, right? Well, she made her decision. She decided she would stick with her husband. The elders said, listen, we'll help you move. We'll help you come up with money for a house. We'll help you make payments. We'll help to support you and your children. We'll take tender care of you and your children. Okay? And she made a decision for her adulterer husband. And the consequences of that in that family have been catastrophic. And you say, well, 
my decisions are banal. You know, they're tiny, they're insignificant, you know. It's, it's nothing like adultery, you know. And I say, listen, do you think that all the things that led up to that seemed cataclysmic to her, very important? Do you realize how much of life are the little decisions you make where you just decide in your own self-will to proceed and you don't ask God to direct you? And you say, well, when I ask God to direct me, I don't hear his voice. And I say, well, (laughs) did you hear what I read from Psalms? Did it sound like all those were said by men that were just completely, just, just, just completely drowning in a sense of the presence of God? No. These were men who did not see and hear God, but they lived by faith and they asked God, And so this is what Moses does. Moses says, look, we are your people. Your name is at stake with us. Your reputation is at stake with us. You must go with us. And if you're not going to go with us, we're not going to go up from this place. And that should be the way that we approach all of our decisions. We should say to God, I'm not going to choose a major. And I'm certainly, Samuel, not going to choose a wife. I don't know anything about your love life. Don't worry about it. And I'm certainly not going to make a decision about how to face my husband's divorce or adultery. Are you with me? And I'm certainly not going to make a decision about building on to the church. And I'm not going to make a decision about a college. I'm not going to make a decision about moving. Are you with me? I'm not going to make a decision about a church without asking God to be with me now in the decision and to go with me in whatever course is chosen. Okay? Simple. Right? It's very simple. Now, a couple of things I'll be done. Number one, You're still, many of you who are reformed, are going to have this nagging suspicion that what I'm telling you to do is just to keep you a little bit on edge and that being on edge can't be a part of the normal Christian life because we have eternal security, right? It just doesn't sound right to be wondering if God is with you. I know you read all that stuff from the book of Psalms, but if you're really a mature Christian and you have real faith, you'll never doubt, right? That's what we all think, because we have eternal security, right? And what's the point of having eternal security if, if, if you have depression? And this is the reason why nobody will ever admit they're depressed in a Reformed church. I'll let you in on a secret. I'm depressed every Monday. Am, is, am, am I right, Mary Lee? Every single Monday, I'm depressed. Every time I get done preaching, I want to vomit over my preaching. It's the truth. We had a friend, when, we, when I was at UW-Madison, we, our pastor vomited before he preached. <laughs> I vomited afterwards. <laughs> I don't know which of us is less godly. <laughs> and so is it a part of the normal Christian life to feel completely abandoned? Or is that an indication that you're not a Christian? Is it a part of the normal Christian life for us to have hearts that cry out to God? Where are you? Come, help. So, I'll do something I rarely do. And that is, if I can open up this thing, I'm going to read to you from... The Westminster Confession of Faith. This is from chapter 18. It's the last of four paragraphs, and this is what it says. True believers, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken. Now, who knows what the word diverse means? And we're not talking about diversity, although that's the root. 
So what it's saying is true Christians can have their faith shaken in a multitude of really squirrely ways. Okay? True believers may have the assurance of their salvation in a multitude of really squirrely ways, shaken, diminished, and intermitted. As, and now it's listing them, by negligence in preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which wounds the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God, now this is what I want you to hear, by God withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet they are neverly, utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. And by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. And so what that shows us is that it's just a part of the normal Christian life that whether it's through temptations, whether it's through particular uh, um, testings of God, whether it's through ongoing sin in our life, grieving the Holy Spirit, that we can go through periods of time where our assurance of salvation is gone. And if our assurance of salvation is gone, then obviously we are not aware of the presence of God. Are you with me? That's when we pray and ask him to come back to us. And it's not impious because the Westminster Confession of Faith acknowledges that this is often a part of the normal Christian life. Are you with me? Everybody with me on this, okay? Now, one last thing. Remember how I talked about this woman and the decision she faced and the council of the elders? You remember that. It is not for you to be an immature Christian for you to ask the counsel of the elders. Your normal habit as a baby should be to go to your mother's breast and not somebody else's. Do you remember that Calvin and all the church fathers refer to the church as scripture does as our mother Do you know that Calvin and the Institute say that we're never done drinking from her until we die? Now, how perverse would it be for us to have been given a mother and to refuse to drink? And what do you think drinking is from our mother? And you say, well, what we're doing right now, and I say, yeah, so in other words, it's just public preaching where you don't ever have to take it personally unless you Unless you happen to be Samuel. Sam, I'm sorry, Sam. Which is it, Sam or Samuel? I love Samuel. Oh. Where is he? Yeah. Samuel, meet Samuel. Samuel, meet Samuel. A few years, I'm going to be talking to you the way I talk to him. So what I want you to do is I want you to realize that God has given you the church and the elders and the older women. Titus 2, older women teach younger women too. God has given you the older women, the older men of the church in order to help you bear your burdens, including your sorrows, your griefs, your depressions, your doubts, and your desire for direction. Does this make sense? Now, if you come to me and you ask me whether you should tithe on your gross or your net, and it's me you're asking, you know what I'll say to you? I'll say, grow up. And you'll say, well, you told me to come to you. And I'll say, get a life, dude. And you'll say, well, I thought you told me to come to you. And I'll say, well, not to me, to the elders, but yeah, I'm one of the elders. But that's not a decision that your elders and pastors should make. There's huge swaths of decisions that are your responsibility. Now, if you come and say, would you share with me your thinking about tithing net or gross? 
I'd be happy to, to bloviate, which is kind of sounds like bloggiate, all right? <laughs> I'd be happy to, you know, give you lots of thoughts about that. The principal one being, if you have to ask it, I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, that are gross. You know, oh man. All right, I've had people ask me that, farmers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not Dutch, though. Um, and so I really want you to be observant of those things in your life where you want God to lead you and you want to know his will. And I want you to use the older men and women of the church or your colleagues or the people that are younger than you, use the church to help you know the mind of God, especially when you choose a husband or wife. Okay? <sighs> All right. Now, one final thing, and this really will be, I promise, no two. All right. um, do you remember in James it talks about asking for wisdom from God? You remember that? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. You remember that? And then it says that he must not doubt because a double-minded man in the King James, it says, is what? unstable in all his ways, okay? And so you must ask God to direct you and to go with you, and God says that if you ask him for wisdom, that he will provide abundantly, bountifully, but that's not the part I love. The part I love is he then says what? Come on without finding fault. And I think that many of us have an attitude that we're saved by grace, but then everything else is by works. And so once we're saved, we can't keep going back to God as a sinner. We have to go back to him wholly, right? And so we're very hesitant to go to God and ask him for wisdom because we know that we don't deserve to get his wisdom because we're so aware of the ways that we sin against him. And so we expect if we go to ask him for wisdom that he'll say, ah, 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 Because that's what our dad did to us. We never, ever could please our dad. And God says that he will provide wisdom, direction to us, bountifully, abundantly, without finding fault. Okay? And so trust God. He's not, he knows everything you do that's sinful, but he's not looking for reasons to refuse to fulfill the promise he has given you. And my dad, who worked with college and grad students his whole life, went around the country speaking at Cedar Campus and Bear Trap Ranch and all these different colleges and universities. And they'd always ask the kids in college, what do you want us to speak on? Number one request was knowing the will of God. All right? And in my dad's old age, he said to me and to anybody that would listen, if the subject came up, he said that if he had one thing to do over, going back and speaking to all these college students, what he would do is he would never speak on the subject of knowing the will of God. And the reason? And then my dad would, he would look at me and he'd say, because if somebody wants to know the will of God, they'll always know it. And boy, have I found that true in my life. If I want to know the will of God, it's very clear to me. So watch your decisions Watch them carefully. Don't presume on God going up with you. Don't think that because you got some chill on your spine that the rabbit's foot is clear direction, you know. Ask him, get counsel from others, and then trust that he will give you direction, okay? Especially those of you that are not married. <laughs> That's the thing that all of us who love you are just so concerned about that God will give you wisdom. It's not our decision. <laughs> uh, it's your decision. That's why we say at the beginning of a wedding, will you have this man to be your wedded husband? And ain't nobody answering at that point. Not your dad, not your mother, not your pastor, not the elders, just you. And if you don't say I will, ain't no marriage going to happen.
So it's your decision, and God better direct you in it. Let's pray. Father, we pray for all the decisions that we have made in the past few weeks. I'm so aware of them. But also the decisions that are coming up for these young graduates, that you will go before them and guide them. We pray, Father, that you will not take your presence from this church, that Ichabod will not be written over our door. We pray that you will be present with the little ones in the wombs of our mothers, that you will be present in the suffering rooms of Nana and of Sally, that you will be present in Bob's house with Bob and the men that care for him. Father, please be merciful to those sheep who are straying and are refusing to listen to the voice of the shepherd. Be merciful, Father. Protect them from their own willfulness and desires. Father, we thank you for the sheep who have returned home. We thank you so much, Father, for the return of Allie. What joy this gives us, and we thank you for the work that you have done in Anthony so that he will confess faith in you. We thank you, Father, for my return when I was slopping pigs in California. We thank you for the adulterers that have really repented and returned to their families. Father, we pray for those who are suffering the consequences of their sin that you will give them faith to live in those consequences as a Christian and not in bitterness and victimhood. And we pray, Father, that you will be pleased to pour out your spirit on us now as we come to this table, that we may feed and drink the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.